I remember one guy I was coaching, he closed the biggest deal of a life of his lifetime and he was at home after the deal closed, um, getting ready for the evening. His wife were going out was and he were going out and she came into um, his changing room kind of abruptly and found him crying. And and she said, Honey, what what is up? Like you've got tears in your eyes. And he said, Yeah, I just closed the biggest deal of my life. And it's totally unfulfilling. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. I know what you're thinking. Here goes Chris talking about Fort Capital again, but guys, it's important to me. Fort Capital is a real estate investment firm based in Fort Worth, Texas. That's why my Twitter handle is Fort Worth Chris. We have a track record of transacting more than 1.4 billion in assets throughout Texas. That's crazy to me. 17 years ago, I bought my first house for $100,000. The team over at Fort is currently looking to acquire Class B industrial deals between 10 and $75 million throughout the major markets of Texas. In fact, Fort Capital was named the fastest growing real estate company in Texas by Inc. Magazine last year. To learn more about Fort Capital, visit www.fortcapitallp.com. Lloyd, uh, welcome to the show. I'm excited. Thank you, Chris. Good to good to be with you again after some time on a big old boat in Florida a few weeks ago. Yeah, um, for those listening who've probably listened to the Pete Chambers episode, I met Lloyd through Pete several years ago, and we've stayed in contact and recently got to spend time in Miami. But so much of what I've learned from Pete, Pete learned from Lloyd, and so today um, is extra special for me. Um, before we get into all that, can we just kind of set the stage with kind of your career and kind of what led you into doing the work that you do today at halftime and, and all the other um, things that you do? Yeah, you know, I have always loved real estate, Chris. I uh, bought my first piece of land when I was 14, just outside Atlantic City. And uh, my dad lent me half the money. I had I had to come up with half the money and he charged me interest which was a really, really smart thing to do. And, you know, that meant I had to get out and mow lawns and shovel driveways and do whatever it took to make the next um, interest payment. And But it made me just fall in love with real estate. I remember walking out on these five acres one day and just something inside me exploded. Just the sense of possibilities what you could do with this land and what would happen if this casinos and stuff really took off in Atlantic city. And so that was the mid seventies. I was 14 years old. Uh, I grew up in Philadelphia and, and uh, then I went to McGill university in Montreal and sold that property and bought uh, 18 acres. And when I graduated from McGill in 1982, I started to work at what is today TD bank 
And you know how it is at banks. You make a very little income, but you get your butt kicked around the bank a bit and you learn, you become teachable. You start to learn from older men and women. And, uh, but I developed, I decided then that I would spend 70% of my effort on the bank and 30% of my effort building my own wealth. So did this subdivision, it was just 18 acres. We, we put 18 large lots in, but you know, I can remember going to the, uh, you know, the public meeting at the county commissioner's office and, you know, 36 neighbors showed up to say they didn't want this infill property to get developed. And I remember one lady said, you know, you can't develop this. My kids run their dirt bikes on that property. <laughs> and I'm thinking like, what the, where's, you know, property rights? What is going on? Is this communism? And so, uh, you know, I, I, I somehow made it through that, it, you know, building you know, roads and curbs. I had no idea what I was doing, but you know, isn't that the essence of an entrepreneur that you just start in and you know that somehow you're going to figure it out. Or, and if you get smacked down, you're going to have to dust yourself off and get up again. And, but after about four or five years working at the bank, I took my uh, statement in uh, from my real estate development into my manager at, who's the assistant vice president for marketing. And I said to him, hey, just can I have a person-to-person -person conversation instead of a corporate conversation? Here's my earnings from my development stuff last year. And here's what I made from the bank. What do you think I should do? And he said, get out of here, you stupid. <laughs> so in 1988, I, I left and my partner, uh, business partner, Andrew, and I started developing seniors housing. And so we decided we were going to buy the best land we could, even if we overpaid for it, because land is generally 10% of the cost of a project like that, and build the best buildings we could uh, at the top of the market, own them for life and never refinance. So that's what we did. So, so today, um, you know, I was 27 then today, I'm 60. Uh, that's what we did. And it's given me the last 28 years of freedom. So so Chris, I'm 28 years into a 50-year experiment to to see, you know, what it, what does a recovering real estate developer do <laughs> if they love their business but they really are looking for more than just owning more buildings, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I'm so grateful that we kept our business because I love it. It's produced great returns, better than I would have gotten any other where any other place, and it's kept me sharp. It's provided a platform. It's been, you know, independent care facilities are pretty stable. They aren't as management intensive as, as higher care facilities. And so they were just a great niche. And of course, the demographics are in our favor. So that brings to the question, what happened to me that I started looking beyond just growing my net worth? And I just remember realizing that once you have some amount of freedom, you have to make a choice about how you allocate your time. And that I had, if I, that no choice would be a choice to just simply go back and continue to keep, um, you know, double downing on our um, investments and growing our portfolio and growing my net worth and spending the money on myself would be a choice. And I had to stop and think about what is going to matter at the end of the day? What's going to bring the most joy, meaning, impact, you know, fulfillment? That that was what started me into this journey to move, to infuse my success with something that you might call significance. 
Was there something, and, and, and to be clear, how old were you when you started having these thoughts? So probably uh, 92 was when I first did, so I was uh, 31 then. And, uh, you know, and then I started exploring. So it took me a couple of years to explore, but um, we did our last project in 1993, so I was 32. And was it something that, that happened uh, maybe in our, in our worldly life? Or was it something that spiritually hit you? A lot of people start making a lot of money at a young age, or at least enough money to be free, and they take that as a pass to actually double down and make more and make more. That's kind of the natural path that the world kind of gives to us. Did something happen to you that maybe triggered a, a different thought, or kind of how did this come to be? You know, I'll, I'll bet you, Chris, it was layers of things. You know, first of all, I was. I grew up in a in a um, faith driven home where um, you know Jesus teachings were pretty prominent, and so those were embedded into my thinking that it's better to give than to get. And, and actually, you know, just giving gifts at Christmas to our kids taught me that lesson. Right? Mm -hmm. It was way more joyful to see the kids open something than for me to get some ridiculous thing I didn't need. Um, and also, you know, that the things that are seen are temporary, the things that are not seen might be p potentially eternal. Mm -hmm. And so that that reshaped my thinking at what you might call a theological or philosophical level. And then experientially, I could see that uh, just accumulating more wouldn't likely produce results. First of all, we're in the seniors housing business. And I we, wow. we had a lot of successful, miserable seniors in our buildings. And I noticed that there was one lady in one building that came out every morning with her little cat under her arm. And she went about the day trying to help people. She helped, she tried to help our staff, you know, clean stuff. And she was, and she was the most cheerful person I know. And right beside her was the mayor's uh, widow who mm. was about the same age. And she was so self-absorbed. In fact, one day she said to me, as I was walking through the dining room, she said, Mr. Reap, Mr. Reap, can I see you? I went over and I said, how are you doing today? And she said, you need to know my ice cream is too cold. <laughs> and I grinned and I said, you know, that is one problem that will actually solve itself. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought to myself, I don't want to be that person, right? And then I, I had the privilege of selling this guy, Patrick Kelly, on moving into one of our buildings. And Patrick Kelly built the first indoor mall in Canada. The, the Eaton Center, downtown Toronto. And, you know, he was kind of a legend in the de development business. I'm, you know, late 20s. He was 75. And I went to see him at his big house, big white house with these brick stairs going up. And I walked up. I was a little intimidated, knocked on the front door. He opened the door. The place was silent. And first thing he did was he took me around to every room in this big, huge house. And he showed me pictures of all the great things he built that were on the wall. And, you know, as a young developer, I was really, really kind of blown away at his in innovation and his courage to try new products and new designs, new architecture. Um, but I knew that from talking to his wife that, that she thought he was a jerk. I knew that his kids were estranged from him. And, and as I, he decided to move into our building, but he had all kinds of, he wanted door openings to be certain widths and he wanted a certain view over the river. And, you know, it was a lot of meticulous stuff. And meanwhile, he had chronic heart disease. I mean, he could have been gone in three months. 
But he was so intent on just grabbing the last thing, the last view, the last. And as I walked out the door, I remember thinking, if I stay focused and work hard, I could be just like him. And then by the time I got to the bottom of the stairs, I thought about it. People didn't like him. There was no people in those pictures. There were no people in that pictures. The house was silent. He was, he was all alone. And I, when my feet hit the ground at the bottom, I said to myself, if I am not careful, I'm going to end up just like him. So that was a trigger. And then I took a trip through Asia in 1991, and I went to four different countries, Hong Kong, Philippines, Malaysia, and Singapore. And in Hong Kong and the other places, we basically just went to resorts and saw stuff. And, but in the Philippines, I worked with poor kids in a, in, a, in a squatter's village, like a slum. We played basketball. We talked about their life, and we tried to inspire them and, and uh, share a faith with them. And, and, and I was sitting at the beach in Malaysia after that week, and, and I realized, this is not the life I want. Sitting on this friggin' beach by myself, drinking a margarita or something. I had more fun with those kids in the Philippines last week. And I just made up my mind. That's not the life I'm going to live. Just, it just didn't work, right? So, see, it's kind of layers, I would say, right? Yep. Okay, so, so 32 comes along. Layers of this have been building up. And at this, at the time when most people say, "Hey, we're successful real estate developers. We need, we need to, you know, 10x this company," you took a different path. Uh, you met a gentleman by the name of Bob Buford, and maybe let's kind of ease into what happened next um, after you had these feelings kind of on your heart for a while. Yeah. So I sent um, back back then there wasn't the internet and email, so. If you were going to explore ways that you could make a contribution, you either had to get in your car and drive somewhere, send a letter, or pick up the phone. And so I sent 40 resumes out to some of the leading nonprofits in the country and around the world that were doing really amazing stuff to bring compassion to people, like World Vision, for example. And I just said to them, look, here's my background, here's my resume, and my time is free. How can you use me? And I got 39 rejection letters <laughs> that I still have in a file. I mean, it was worse than my track record applying to colleges. <laughs> and uh, I still have them in a file to remind myself that no one was making a market between the most talented business leaders and the biggest needs in our communities. That the nonprofit world had no idea what a real estate developer was or how to use their skills. All they would do was say, well, you could be on a board where you could write a check. And um, those I knew were not my best contribution. So uh, I started trying things. One of those organizations didn't send me a rejection letter. They picked up the phone and called me back and, and we went and had coffee. And um, at the fall of communism in um, the Soviet Union, Albania was the most isolated country as part of that uh, block of countries. And all of their farmers had been taught to, to grow what they were told to grow. And then the crops were taken from them at the end of the year, they were given a stipend to live on. But now all of a sudden they were given five acres of land and they had market driven farming, but none of them understood fixed cost, variable cost, or anything like that. And they were literally starving. And so I ran a project to take a hundred farmers from the United States over to Albania for a winter and train them community by community on how to think like a small farmer. 
And it was amazing to see the impact these guys had, both on the Albanian farmers and these American farmers came back with a deep sense of gratitude with a whole different perspective on life. And of course, I had a blast. So that got me sort of infected with the disease that, um, you know, giving was truly better than getting and that I could use my or my organizational promotional skills, my communicating skills, all the stuff that may be a good real estate guy to, to be a good give it back guy, a good guy to help a country that I'd never even heard of before, you know? So you, you asked about Bob though. So sorry about that. Well, so you, you, but you came back again, probably we'll count that as another layer but then something happened with Bob and you you partnered to create something that has really been foundational for call it the next 20 years of this 50 year experiment you've been doing. Yeah, so you know, I was bumping along uh trying to figure this out on my own and when I would talk to my friends at my age, they would say to me, "Oh gosh, cry me a river, you know, you don't know what to do with your time. Come back when you got a real problem." <laughs> so that wasn't very helpful. Um <laughs> It was funny, but, you know, and they were trying to be, you know, they just didn't understand what I was going through. So anyway, when someone introduced me to Bob Buford, he had just written a book called Halftime, and, and it chronicled this journey. And, and really what we found out was he was just putting words to the feelings that many people in our generation were, were experiencing. And I might have been on the early end, the younger end of the movement, and he was on maybe the older end of the movement. We were 22 years apart. He had hundreds of millions of dollars to give away. I had enough to live on and and to have some freedom and make some contributions with it. So we kind of bracketed this idea that your life could be about more than just success. It could be success with significance. And so he said to me, why don't you come do a talk? So our first talk, I think, was a YPO event in, in 1997 um, um, or 1998. And and we were overwhelmed with the response. And so we realized that there was an opportunity here that really uniquely fit both of us. And so I stopped all the other things I was doing. And together, we just hunkered down to build what would be a university for the second half. And one of the things that happened then, Chris, was we got some trickle-down wisdom from Peter Drucker. Bob, was a, Bob Buford was at the time being mentored by Drucker, who was in his uh, 80s and maybe uh I, we track with him until he passed away at 95. So Trucker would meet with Bob every quarter or every six months in his home in San Clemente, California. And Bob had the wisdom to record all their conversations and have them transcribed. And so I got to listen in on this wisdom trickling down from an 80-year-old to a 60-year-old down to a 35-year-old. And one of the things that Peter Drucker said to Bob was that people today have two lives, life one and life two. And they're overprepared for life one and underprepared for life two. And that there's no university for the second half of life. And then he went on to write an article for Harvard Business Review out of what we were working on called Finish uh, um, Managing Oneself. You can look it up on online. It's a powerful article worth worth reading even today even though it was written in 1999 and the basic idea was we've we've been trained to run to manage our business our team maybe even to manage parts of our household although for many of us we left our spouse to that role uh, but now with the freedom and longevity we have we're going to need to learn how to manage our life 
And because we're knowledge workers, we can make a contribution deep into life. Whereas before, when most of us were manual workers, you know, the average life expectancy was 47 or 48 just 100 years ago in America. And when you got to that age, your, your, your energy was declining. You'd been working as a farmer, as a factory worker for so long that your contribution was dropping with your energy level. Whereas today, your contribution actually continues to rise because you go from warrior to king to sage. And in that sage category, once you get proficient at something in your 40s or 50s, you, you start to move from just being able to lead and manage to being able to influence. And you can get a multiplier on your contribution. Before we kind of get into that second half, and that's kind of, I guess, the Halftime Institute, um, you know, one of the things that Pete and I have talked a lot about is, and maybe you could speak to this a little bit, a lot of the listeners in here are in their 30s and 40s, but what are things that folks at this age should be thinking about so that you mentioned that empty house of that gentleman and there was no people in it, there was no life in it. Um, and that's kind of what Pete and I have talked a lot about is, you know, we've been trained to work really hard and kind of ignore maybe the things that are important, not knowing that we're doing it. So maybe framing the question as let's go on a, a conversation of what are things that you have witnessed that folks do well at younger ages that really set them up to be able to be significant later in life. And then what are things that people, you know, maybe they do it knowingly or unknowingly do to where they're creating a huge problem down the road that they don't know is happening? Yeah, well, I think one, one way to tackle that is to, is to take a single sheet of paper, Chris, and create two columns. And on one side, list everything you have that's valuable okay. until you've run out of stuff. Then on the other side, list everything you have that's priceless. And when I was asked to do that by my mentor, I was gleefully writing down all these great things I had that were valuable until he said to me, now on the other side, write down everything you have that's priceless and then tell me what you're doing to protect them. And first of all, there were very few things in the priceless category. And and I started to write my business down on the priceless category. And then I realized, no, there's a valuation. There's a valuation on that. It has a value. It's not priceless. And so it went on the other column. And what was on that priceless column um, was largely unprotected. I, I noticed that the things on the valuable column were insured to replacement value, not just cost. You know, they were, they were taking... They, my investments were diversified so that they would be protected. And, and yet there were things on the priceless column that were sitting out there in full exposure without the thoughtfulness of protecting them. And so that is the place to start. Your 30s is the time to really hunker down because, and, and think like a long-term investor in your life. And don't just focus on things that are valuable, but deline delineate between what's truly priceless and what's valuable. And then never trade what's priceless for something that's merely valuable. Now, if that's all you do, by definition, you're going to avoid paying some really dumb tax in life. So some of the things that are valuable, priceless on my list were my reputation, um, my marriage, my health, 
you just if you just start with those few things and think about it, what am I doing to protect my reputation? And what am I doing to protect my health right now? Because the things you do in your 30s and 40s will catch up with you in spades in your 40s and 50s, right? And what are you doing to protect the the most loving relationships you have in life and your friendships? And you know, you, you know, my relationship with God is a priceless thing for me. And yet it only showed up in my calendar on Sundays. And Linda, what she got was, you know, a date night where I was still completely engrossed in problem solving the latest real estate kerfuffle or refinancing house or something, whatever the deal was. And, um, and she was getting my leftovers and, uh, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily taking our daughters on a date each month and different things that I learned were priceless to, to really protect the priceless things. And, you know, our daughters are now in their thirties. Our daughter, Carolyn is 33 and she and I still have a monthly date, even though she lives in Berlin and I live in Charlotte. I go to my favorite restaurant at lunch, and because she's six hours ahead, she goes to her favorite restaurant. I pay for her meal. I set up a little tripod. I have, you know, FaceTime on there and <laughs> headset in. And I have a date with this beautiful lady who wants to spend an hour with me. And you know what's surprising to me is almost every time. When I close the call and take the headsets out, whoever has been the wait waitress um, serving my lunch has said to me, she's so lucky. And that's just surprised me. But it's kind of empirical evidence of what happens when you invest in the priceless things. It has a high return on life. So that would be where I'd start. And um, if, if that's all you do, you'll make a huge... Now, you know, difference in your 40s, 50s, 60s. One other thing, Chris, and that is to to get past the idea that you have to first make money and then make a difference. They're not they're not decoupled. You know, some of the biggest impacts I see happening around the world are happening on a business platform, on a for-profit platform. And so, you know, we can go deeper into those examples whenever you'd like, but that would be the second piece of advice for somebody, you know, even in your early 30s is, is don't think about delaying your contribution because you're busy growing in successful business. Just work on creative ways you can infuse impact into that. And you might be able to get a double bottom line. When, when somebody explains it how you just explained it. The reaction by most people listening to you are like, duh, that sounds so easy and so obvious. But why is it that no, but that, that it's so hard to achieve or it's so like mystifying to hear for the first time? What is it about the world that when you think, oh, valuable, priceless, oh, obviously I should spend more time on my priceless. Why isn't it a natural thing? What What is it that kind of makes something that seems so not only obvious, but something so important kind of fall to the wayside? Is it because it's really hard or, or, or what is it? Yeah, it might be. It is hard, right? Because you're, it's, you're, you're setting aside things that you've been trained to go after. And, you know, if you're, a, if you're a hard charging real estate guy, I mean, you're like a racer. You were given a Porsche engine, not a Chevy engine, right? When you were mm -hmm. born and, and Porsche engines don't idle well. So, um, it's, 
you know, it's not in your nature necessarily to slow down and reflect on what's priceless and, and think carefully about what, a, you know, a, a rep, how important your reputation is right. or how, how meaningful it would be if you really learn how to cherish your spouse and, um, you know, the huge impact that you can make in your child's life or what a healthy body will feel like at 60, 70, and 80, as opposed to one that's just been totally disregarded. So I think part of it is that, you know, your audience are, are people who were born with a, a Porsche engine, not a Chevy engine. My closest friend has a Audi R8 uh, Spider, and it's supercharged, so it has 753 <laughs> horsepower. And every time, every once in a while, we swap cars for a weekend. And, you know, in the little town where I live, Davidson, North Carolina, college town, you know, you're going through that town with that Audi R8, just like, <laughs> the thing does not idle well. And, you know, that's what it's like going through life if you have, if you've been, you've got so much testosterone pumping through your system. So it takes a lot of willpower um, and wisdom to slow down and say, okay, if that gets out of control, it's going to be very harmful. And, you know, every time I start to take off in that Audi R8, I realize if I'm not careful, this thing's going to spin out of control. There's so much power and it's going to, it's going to kill both of us. And the same is true with, with unbridled talent and unbridled uh, entrepreneurial skills. You have to rein them back in and live within your limits. And so I think that's part of it. It's hard to do. I think the other is we haven't had a lot of models. I don't think that the, the generation above you, Chris, did a good job. You know, how many Pete Chambers do you know, right, who really did a great job raising these three beautiful girls and, and didn't get caught up in being a super rich guy, you know, and all that, um, and built his character. That, that's So we didn't see very many models. And maybe the other is we it wasn't spelled out for us because the, the previous generations didn't have all this longevity and options. A lot of them were just working in corporate America like my dad was. My dad ran a valuation consulting firm and, and you know, took the train from Philadelphia into New York every morning and took the train back. You know, when he got back, he just did family life and, and it was just very bifurcated. That was that was it. Now we've got so much flexibility. So it's a whole new day for someone that's that's following your podcast that's in their 30s and has a lot of talent. There's so much more they can do and so much more influence they can garner. That is why I am so excited about what you're doing is you're paving the way for a whole nother generation of world leaders that could really do it differently. I remember when Pete, when we first started talking about this five, six years ago, and I'm a visual learner and I'm also really stubborn and like to think I'm always right. And I remember thinking, man, I'm going to work so hard for all these decades and I'm going to prove the whole world that I'm going to build the tallest mountain. And he showed me this graph. I think you created it or maybe it was created at halftime. I think it was like something along the lines of a rocket ship. And it was kind of a man's or a woman's journey in their mind of, you know, I'm building this business. I'm making lots of money and, and life will just go up and up and up until the day I die. And what happened in that graph was about midway through, we'll call it that second half, everything started to slump and crash and burn. 
Can you describe kind of that model and, and how that happens? And then I, I want to get into the work that you're actually doing with people that are in the second half of their life. But And I think we've already touched on it a little. But what happens when, the, when it starts to all fall apart? Yeah, so we call that the sigmoid curve. Uh, and it's a classic. You can look it up online. It's used for you know product life cycles. It's used in, um, in engineering. Actually, your horsepower in your car probably has a sigmoid curve where you get above a certain RPM and the horsepower actually drops off. Um, and so there are many things in nature where when you push too long and too hard, you get diminishing returns. And it turns out that just by observation, when you follow your first half dream too long and too hard, it turns over on itself. And it does so for different reasons for different people, but it almost always does. For some people, it's because the thrill of the deal just goes away. They never expected it. I remember one guy I was coaching, he closed the biggest deal of, a life, of his lifetime, and he was at home after the deal closed, um, getting ready for the evening. His wife were going out, was, and he were going out, and she came into um, his changing room kind of abruptly and found him crying. And, and she said, honey, what, what is up? Like, you've got tears in your eyes. And he said, yeah, I just closed the biggest deal of my life. And it's totally unfulfilling. Uh, sometimes it's because uh, you, the last kid goes off to college or the first kid goes off to college. And all of a sudden you realize, oh my gosh, I missed all those wonderful opportunities when I was either not present or when I was present, I was psychologically gone, just busy working on some problem or some opportunity. And, and that'll just catch you by the throat. And, and I've had that experience. And I remember when I took Carter, when Linda and I took Carter to college, um, he had long curly hair, Chris, and it, it would kind of bounce around and he really a uh, good looking kid. And, and so when we got him all checked in and we were, he walked us down to the car, gave me a big hug and a kiss on the cheek. And then he turned around and walked away. And my brain went to slow motion. And I could see his hair bobbing up and down and, and the brick wall of the building behind him. It was just in the sun setting. And I can still see it in my mind's eye. And I remember saying to myself, if I hadn't given this boy my very best, I would trade any one of my retirement homes right now for a do-over. Mm. And that'll catch you by the throat. For some people, it's because a relationship blows up. You get divorced or you, you're, you're, you realize that you're distant from all your siblings or you, 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 you've never really nurtured your relationship with your mom and dad or something relational just catches you. Sometimes it's just a, you sell your business and you, you, you lose your platform and you wonder, okay, wow, that's interesting. Now, now what do I do? But there's almost always an inflection point in what the, op, your, your audience, if, uh, if any of your audience are younger than that inflection point, the big thing to know is that it's coming, number one. So don't count on driving your first half dream too long and too hard and waiting for it to turn over on itself. That leads to a classic midlife crisis. Instead, plan on reinventing yourself. Be ready to let go of things that are great, but, but when it's time to jettison them, there'll be something better coming your way. And 
and then use this first half as training ground, knowing that you're going to continue to invest your life and you're going to have skills, influence, a network, capital that you can invest that will produce a really remarkable return on life in the next season. So view the first half as preparation for something that would be even more exciting. Whereas many people that I coach now that are in their mid-50s, they dread selling their business because they have nothing to go to. And they can't imagine picking up shells on a beach every day for the next 30 years. I'll speak from experience. Um, and I'm still, uh, I certainly am not cured of this, but you know, I have been fortunate to be thinking along these lines now for several years and, and it's, it's had a great impact on me, but okay. I've got three young kids. Um, and a lot of my identity has been tied to my business. Again, looking back on it, it wasn't for a while I was proud of it. And maybe you, you have this answer, maybe you don't, but how do you begin to decouple yourself from something you can't just wake up and say, voila, I'm no longer tied to this, especially if you've been in the business for so long. I mean, I, I started this business 17 years ago. In a lot of ways, there's some days I feel like I can't escape it. Is it, is it an inner peace that you come with? When, when the whole world knows you for something and no matter where you go, you can't kind of get out of this, hey, you're Fort Capital, you're Fort Capital. I don't want to get away from it for the wrong reasons, but I also want to live a life where it's not the first thing people think of. And, you know, I'm guilty of for many years making sure it was the first people, it was the first thing people thought of. How does a guy start to decouple themselves from that? Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's going to be difficult. I found it difficult to just talk to myself and say, stop needing to rely on what you used to do and what you own to define who you are. Um, it, 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 was, it just didn't have the willpower to do that or maybe the courage to do that. So I think the process is, number one, celebrate what has happened. Really, truly celebrate the, you know, the, some of the hiccups that have been good learning lessons and some of the success you've had and acknowledge that for what it is. And in a sense, in your mind and heart, put a big bow around it and, and just say, you know, that is a big accomplishment. It's similar to if you had a big success in high school or college in, in sports. You know, some people get tied to that and they can never move beyond it. And every mm -hmm. time they go to a family or a college reunion, they're talking about that one big play, right? Well, I mean, I've got a picture of me doing the Iron Cross when I was a gymnast. And I put a bow around it. I had the privilege of doing that. And, and, and just enjoy and celebrate that, but then legitimately set it aside and say, you know what? I'm no longer a gymnast. And yep. I can walk on my hands a little bit, but I couldn't do an iron cross. And you know that's okay because I have different things now. And then the second piece, so that's one, celebrate what you've done and who you've been. Um, don't downgrade it. And then the second thing is you have to move towards something. So gradually build an identity around who you want to be. Mm. And you'll have to do that several times. So I went from being a successful real estate developer to being a founding partner of the Halftime Institute. And 
and I remember weaning myself off of saying, yeah, I'm Lloyd Reeb. I used to develop real estate here in town and, and my partner and I own such and such a building, you know, and I remember one day Chris going home and going, oh my gosh, what an idiot. Why do I have to say that? <laughs> it's so small. And then, you know, well, you know what I found myself saying next was like, yeah, I'm Lloyd Reeb and we, you know, Bob Buford and I founded the Halftime Institute. It's now Global Movement. <clears throat> You know, it's just a slightly less pathetic version of the same <laughs> because at least it's altruistic, right? Um, yeah. But it's still pretty small. And yeah. I can tell you what I want to be now, Chris. This is like, yeah. this is my being state, okay? Mm -hmm. So I'm 60, right? So when you and I are hanging out, smoking cigars or whatever at 80, I want you to see a kind, wise, inspiring dad, grandpa, mentor, thought leader, hearing God, and with courage, courage, acting on what he tells me to do. So that's who I want to be at 80. And I got so much growing to do between now and then. You know, the tendency is to become a grumpy old man, to become stuck in your ways. So if I'm going to really grow into being kind, wise, inspiring dad, grandpa, mentor, thought leader, then I got some real growing and learning to do. So I would say, you know, you and I are going to be continually allowing our identity to be reshaped to be something deeper, richer, um, and it will bring more meaning. So I'd say, you know, what you just described about yourself is welcome to the club. You know, that's exactly who I've been and have been growing through. And you take it a step at a time. But what no one told me that would have been helpful is to truly celebrate what you've done these last 17 years and, and get the pictures and stories about the lives you've changed in the buildings you've built and the thing, the, the resources you've created that you can use to change the world, capture those and, and memorialize them so that they don't become diminished over time. And that'll help you give you freedom to move beyond it. So you you went and you started the Halftime Institute and not everybody that's having these feelings like you can realistically, that's going to be their path. Um, and you just kind of made a statement and I, we're going about to get to the Halftime Institute, but you said something like we can go deeper on how folks that might be having this feeling but don't have the luxury of going and starting a, a Halftime Institute or, or leaving a position to go kind of into a new career. But you said... There might be things that you can do within your own business or thoughts that you can bring to the tables to where you don't have to make a radical shift, but you can shift kind of within what you know. What are some practices or success stories or things that you've seen that um, if somebody's listening to this and they have a business and again, can't go start Halftime Institute, but want to do things in their business, what are things they can go do? Yeah. So here's, here's, since these are, you know, we're, we're interacting with a tribe of real estate guys, right, Chris? So here's some real estate stories. So Micah Latcher is a young, very talented real estate developer from Nashville. He has a farm in Franklin. His offices are in Nashville. And he builds malls, um, you know, retail, um, but wants to make a difference in the poor section of Nashville. So what he's been doing is simply alongside his main development channels, he has been buying churches in East Nashville and turning them into boutique hotels that are self-run. So you enter code at the front door, 
you know, there's no staff there. And, um, and so he's getting the play on the capital appreciation, but all the profits from them are used in that part of town to partner with four different organizations that he has vetted that are really making a difference in people's lives. One is a mobile shower um, ministry that if you're a homeless person, you may not be able to walk all the way across town to where you could get a shower, but they have a this big old van that's set up perfectly to be able to have a really net, a shower you and I wouldn't mind using. And you go in and you get a shower for free and you get some new clothes to put on and, you know, and you go back to your life, but it's, it's a part of helping you potentially move up out of that. So if you stay in one of Micah's hotels in East, um, you know, Nashville, you're just a few blocks from the Gulch where all the cool, you know, bars and everything are, but you, you, by staying there, you're paying for 10 nights for a person to live in a homeless shelter or 30 showers or a hundred meals, I think something like that. And he's done four of these. And then the second thing he does is every year, because he's got such a great robust development team that can do all the approvals that are needed in the city, he knows all the players, um, the design work, et cetera. He finds one nonprofit in town that has a real estate problem and they fix it. They do all the design strategy, they pay for it, they fix it as a team. And his team is thoroughly engaged. They feel like we are building stuff that's not only making money, but it's making a difference. Now, do you think he has a better chance at keeping talented people when every day they wake up and they realize this young guy is not just about growing his own wealth? Here he is paying for people to have showers, for goodness sakes. And, and then what do you think his kids are learning? as they watch him, as he takes them to downtown and shows them, Here, here's where these people get a shower. Here's where these people get free food from us, from our family. Now, is that a better life than just building more and more stuff for me and buy another fancy car or a third house or what the heck? You know, now Matt, Micah Latcher is still kicking butt as a real estate developer, but he's just figured out ways to leverage what he has in some very creative ways. It takes creativity. And then, um, so another friend of mine, and these are all guys I've coached, so I know their story well. Tim Sidema is, um, owns Crosland Southeast, which is a real estate developer in Charlotte, North Carolina. Big, big developer, planned urban developments, and has you know, credibility with people in town. But he, he found out that um, you know, it was very difficult for a child to break the cycle of poverty if they grew up in West Charlotte. And he'd said to me, I'll just read what he said to me. He said, what really captured my heart is that research shows that 90% of a child's brain is developed by age five. Research also shows that by providing quality early education translates into long-term education and ultimately economic success. And so we began to build uh, affordable housing in the Freedom Drive corridor of Charlotte we discovered an area was considered to be a child care desert. In other words, there was no child care for, for a four or five star early education for children zero to three, which puts the entire community at a significant disadvantage when it comes to the future potential of these children. 
So he used his development skills. He rounded up some of his, his investors, and together they bought and built what's today called the Tuck Hub. And it's a perfect little example of how he could leverage his abilities to make a 100x impact. It's a win-win-win. And so what he said to me is that um, here's why it's a win-win. First of all, we've preserved a historic building and brightened up the community. Secondly, we partnered with the trusted community and business leaders to help one lady that already runs a great childcare training center expand. And we've added 15 jobs. And then we responded to the educational crisis in a way that gives the community access to the critical care they need. We pushed for, forward our larger agenda of equipping the next generation of neighborhood kids with a strong education. And then best of all, I included my friends and it has changed their families. So how do you argue with that? You know? Yeah. You can't. All right. Let's describe what the Halftime Institute does. And then I want to get a little deeper into the forums that you run. And then we'll talk about the case studies and, 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 and what kind of comes out of all that. So what, what was Halftime Institute originally set out to do? And then let's kind of go from there. Yes, yeah, so our original vision was to help people who were super successful figure out how to use their time and money to make a difference in their second half of life and have, find more joy, meaning, and balance in, in the process. And that's what we've done. We've gotten good at it. What we've realized, though, at the same time is that um, there are a lot of talented people who may not be completely financially independent, but have options, they have capacity, they have build businesses like the two stories I just shared and they want to make a difference. They just don't know where or how they lacking clarity. And so we designed processes to help people get clear, get free and get going. And then lastly, in the last three or four years, we've created these emerging leader roundtables where we gather together six or at most seven emerging rock stars, guys and gals that are going to be CEOs one day, but they're 33 or 34. And we meet once a month by on Zoom. So they don't have any more travel for two hours. So it fits into their life. And we help them build a strategy, just like my roadmap that I've got here that you, you've seen, right, Chris? Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's got their purpose statement. It's got their long-term metrics for their life. It has a, a sense of what their spouse's dream is if they happen to be married. We help them create a vision for their family so that they're not just drifting with the culture, but they're actually leading their family somewhere. And then big action areas around their business, their investments, their health, their marriage, their family, um, the fun stuff they need to infuse. A lot of times fun gets stripped out of a 35-year-old executive's life. And that's not a healthy place to be either. So it's interesting that over a short period of time, we can help an emerging leader build a strategy to really avoid most of the pitfalls, most of the dumb tax that my generation has paid. And if you were to give kind of two or three of the accomplishments that leaders that actually finish well have in common or characteristics, can you speak to what some of those are? Well, it, you know, finishing well is a big, is a big topic, Chris. And um, in, in the summers when Bob Buford was alive, we would do an event for several summers in a row, I think maybe three, where, with Jim Collins, just called Finishing Great. 
he was interested in it because um, many of the level five leaders he studied in good to great and built to last didn't finish well when they left corporate America. We were interested in finishing well because it's one thing to help someone have a renewal season in their 30s, 40s, or 50s. It's another thing to, to really help them do what's required so that they're thriving in their 70s or 80s. And one of the things that struck me was Peter Drucker wrote a letter to um, Bob Buford, and I have, a, uh, I have an excerpt of it here, I think. He wrote that um, this was in November 20th, 1999. So Peter Drucker is known as the father of modern management theory. And he wrote about knowledge workers in the 50s before they existed. And, and you know, he, he consulted to GE for 60 years. And at, at the end of his 90th birthday, Bob threw a party for him on his 90th birthday. And he, he wrote this letter to Bob that was typed, typed in his little typewriter. You know, this is maybe one of the smartest minds in, our, in the past century. And he said, this letter is, a, is of profound thanks for what you, Bob, have done for me in the third half of my life, which is kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Um, the last 15 years or so. It is through you and your friendship that I have attained in my old age a new and significant sphere of inspiration, of hope, and of effectiveness. Inspiration, hope, and effectiveness. Now think about that. that that's finishing well. And you know what he said in another letter to Bob was that he felt like the last 11 years of his life were the most productive. So, you know, when I think about finishing well, um, I think about joy. I think about having been able to use my life to make the biggest contribution on this planet. So I call that uh, um, a 100x return on life. I want to I make sure that every unit of effort, every day I invest produces 100 units of blessing in other people's lives. And I hope that that will compound. Um, so finishing well for me is about being healthy as long as possible. So I've done all kinds of crazy things about health. You know, I weigh the same amount. I've weighed the same amount for all my life. I weigh myself every day. You know, I exercise all the things about exercise, my gene sequence. So I know that I have the EPOE4 gene, which is the gene for late onset dementia. And so I'm working on that and, um, you know, balance and flexibility and silence and solitude and breathing. And um, I take three silent solo days a year. Those are things that are contributing to hopefully finishing well. Now, I know I can't control that I won't have a stroke, but I know that my, my, I've had that cardio CTA scan, for example, which I would recommend to any executives. I know I've got no blockages in my, my, my heart, my artery system. If I really want to love my family well and extravagantly, then you're going to see in my calendar that I, that I cherished Linda and that she felt cherished. And so, for the last 11 years, I take one day a week that is the Linda day. And I just make that a special day for her where the focus is her. And I leave my phone off for most of it. So my point in all that is everyone listening to our conversation, Chris, has to decide for themselves what finishing well means. Now, one way to get at that is to come up with a matched pair of people in your mind. Think of two people you know that were both successful at midlife, but one one of those people is finishing life well now, 
and the other has been squandering their second hand. What happens when you start looking for matched pairs like that? When you start looking for two people that you know, both successful, one finishing well, one squandering their second half, is it forces you to decide in your mind, in your heart, what does finishing well mean to me? What does squandering your second half mean to me? For some people, they may be happy to just retire and drift the rest of their life, RVing around the country, looking for the ultimate soft yogurt. Um, or picking up shells on a beach. And, you know, to me, that's like a life sentence. So, you know, that just doesn't interest me. But only, only you know, a person can decide for themselves what it would look like. Now, it will take a lot of intentionality to finish well because the odds of our culture are, are, you know, are starkly pointed the other direction. I think, and I'm, I'm speaking for myself, but uh, this comes up a lot in conversation. Um, like where I'm at right now is... Um, I have this deep feeling and, and I tell people that I talk to regularly, I feel like there's a next chapter coming for me. The natural instinct is to say it's going to be another business, this time bigger than better than ever, um, but I'll do it differently this time. But then there's part of me that thinks maybe it has nothing to do with business. And I think a lot of people share kind of that feeling of there has to be something more, but how do I know what it is? How do I find it? Is there is there best practices for understanding maybe like what that calling would be or what you're meant to do, um, especially for entrepreneurs that the pressure is always to kind of say, you know, keep it in business, keep it in business. And, and maybe that is the answer. But what do you tell people that are like, I, I've got that feeling. I just can't figure out what it is. Well, the the most common mistake is to work on the solution too quickly. And it's funny because none of your listeners, Chris, would do that in a business. You start in a business, you start, okay, what business are we in? What's our mission? Who's our customer? What does our customer consider value? And then you build a strategy. You don't just start building real estate and, and then decide what business you're in. You know, we decided independent care facilities because we wanted something that was low in management and very stable, not too sexy to produce cash flow because the operative word for me was freedom. Well, that's coming from a metric. The metric was freedom. The, the strategy was real estate. The tactic was the tactical stuff down at the very bottom was independent care facilities. And the, the stupid mistake that we make naturally in midlife or when we start thinking about what next chapter is, is we start working on, well, do I want to build condos? Do I want to build single family housing? Do I want to build office buildings? You can't tell until you know what the long-term metrics are. What do you want this business to produce? Now, let's take it back to your life. That's where you start, long-term metrics. If my life turned out perfectly, how would I know? You, you can't build the next chapter until you get clear on what, where it's taking you. It's Drucker's question, to what end? Just write that down if you're listening. To what end? Now, I have six metrics in my life. So everything that I do, each choice I make, are influenced by the metrics and my purpose statement or my mission statement. These are the two tools that you'd use to start to shape the, the next chapter. Once, Chris, once you know for sure what you want long term, then, then you build your purpose statement. And your mission statement has your strengths embedded into it, what you care the most about, the difference you want to make on this planet. 
And then with those two in hand or in mind, you design your platform. You start designing your platform on, per, on paper. And then it, it tumbles out of that rubrics, whether it's a for-profit or a non-profit, whether it's global, national, or local, whether it's big or small, whether you scale it, whether you're the chairman, whether you're the CEO, whether you're just a serving person, you know, it tumbles, it, it stumbles out of the that thinking. So the place to start, the very first place to start, if you sense there's a new chapter in life, is to make sure that you're clear on the long-term metrics. And then with those in hand, write a mission statement that designs how it's a filter statement for where you will invest your time. And you think about your life in terms of investing, not, not spending your time. So, you know, think like a long-term investor where you're trying to achieve the highest possible return on life. And, you know, you've heard the expression, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul, right? Nobody ever takes their assets with them from this planet. So it, it's just asinine to think that the, the big ultimate metric is whoever dies with the most toys wins. That, that doesn't make sense. Every, everybody can see that, that's, that, that that makes no sense. So what does a win look like for you? So the way to think about this is, suppose it was 30 years from now, Chris, how old will you be? Would you be 80? I'll be 65. How old are you now? 35. Okay, good. <laughs> you're like, day. damn, you're pretty gray. You look 50. <laughs> <laughs> You know, my my son Carter's thirty five, and and he's he's gray like I am. So I, um, so all right, so sixty five. So suppose you and I bump into each other forty years from now. Okay, I would be a hundred. Gosh, I better really keep in shape. <laughs> so you're seventy five. If you can visualize that, we're sitting on a bench, you know, at some beautiful place by the beach, and I look over at you and say, "Wow, Chris, those." 40 years went so fast and I, I'm so proud of what you've done with your talent, with your life and in your family. How did it go for you? And suppose you look off in the distance and you don't answer me for a while, but after you've given it deep thought, you look me in the eyes and you say to me, you're not going to believe it. It went perfectly. What would be those things you'd have to scroll through in the back of your mind in order to draw that conclusion? Those are long-term metrics. Those, now, remember, you decouple what you want to measure from how you'll measure. But those things that you scrolled through sitting on that bench 40 years from now that allowed you to draw the conclusion that your life had gone perfectly, those are those long-term desires that you have as best as you know them now at age 36. So you write those down. And every time you start working on a strategy for your life, you ask yourself, is this life going to take me, is it going to produce these long-term desired results? That will bring a lot of clarity to the next chapter right off the bat, just that one question. And then the second question, if you had that, and, and do you feel like you do have those answers, Chris? I'm starting to get them. Thank, thanks to you and and Pete. Um, they change a little bit time to time, but the core tenets of them, yes, I do have. Yeah, and you 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 know it's it's imper This is an imperfect science, right? Because we're imperfect people. So you start with what you know, and you keep building and refining it. But okay, so with those in hand, 
then you ask yourself, what's my purpose on this planet? And, you know, when you drift along with no purpose, then pretty much anything looks good or could work. And it's very difficult to have a decision or to say no to good things so that you can say yes to the best. So without a purpose statement, you become sloppy busy. And sloppy busy is just miserable. But, you know, this time I have with you today, I am not in a rush. There's nothing else I need to be doing. There's nothing pressing me. I haven't thought about anything except our conversation for this entire hour. It's because I know my purpose. And so I can do it with full, full being fully present. When yesterday afternoon, I had our two granddaughters for an hour, for an hour and a half. One is hearing impaired. And so I have to make sure she doesn't lose her hearing aids. The other one is potty training at three. So I have to make sure she doesn't pee her pants. And, you know, so it goes from like coaching a CEO to helping, you know, not lose <laughs> hearing aids and peeing pants. And you know what? Because I know that's my role and it's priceless. I didn't think about anything except those two sweet little girls. And that is such a freeing way to live. So if you don't know your purpose statement, then you become sloppy busy. You take on things that are good, but not great. You lose the focus that made you great at your business. And you certainly don't have leverage. Now, if you're going to write a mission statement, if I were helping you write a mission statement, I would start with, who are you? What makes you great? Why do you have so many people following this podcast when other people struggle to build an audience? And get that down in writing. And then secondly, what do you care the most about? Like, what makes you mad, sad, and glad? And, and that's a bit of archaeology, not architecture. And then lastly, I would ask you, well, given who you are, Chris, and given what you care the most about, what difference would you like to make in this world? And as, as I help you get clarity around that, now you have a mission statement. So I'm a thought leader, enabling high-capacity business leaders to make a lasting impact in this world. That's my purpose statement. So it's a filter because when I get opportunities every single day, I say no to 90% of them. And I say, number one, is this a place where thought is forming? You don't need a thought leader if there's no, if no thought is forming. But the people listening to your podcast are trying to think through their life. And so I can be a thought leader for them. Mm. That's my core contribution. Secondly, I only work with high capacity people because when I work with middle managers, they go away frustrated and, and, and I just go crazy mm. because Why? they can't see the possibilities. They're just so stuck. It just frustrates me. So I only work with high capacity leaders. And then I don't want to just help people live a slightly more fulfilling life. I want to see them change the world. You know, I helped a guy six years ago in Singapore. And I remember him writing in his, in a, on a whiteboard that what he, his dream was to bring sight to the blind. And I got to tell you, Chris, I thought to myself, seriously? Like, <laughs> I was kind of skeptical. Well, I went back just the year before COVID started. I had lunch with him. He's super wealthy, very talented. He's, he's in his 70s. He has organized and funded 25,000 cataract surgeries for seniors in China that would never otherwise see their grandbabies with clarity. Mm. Now, do you think, like, do you think I felt joyful flying home for 26 hours from this stupid flight to Singapore? <laughs> um, you know, 
I, I said to myself, if that's the only thing I did all year, that was worth it. Think about 25,000 people that can see their kids and grandkids because of one person. So when you get clear on your purpose and you say no to 90% of the things that come your way so you can say yes to the best things, you will see a 100x return on your life. And you don't be sloppy busy because there's so much leverage. And is, is the answer to not being sloppy busy as easy as it sounds is, is once you've built that filter, having the courage to just start saying no to everything that doesn't fit that mission? Yeah. And like any other discipline, like flossing your teeth or, um, you know, exercising, it takes, it takes, you know, you build the muscle, right? Because things are tempting, you know, you, you get tempted by stuff that, that, strokes your ego or, you know, just there's a certain sense that if your calendar's full and crammed that you're an important person. And, you know, one time I went to take care of the two grandbabies and I was coaching a, a CEO of a global brand that you, you would all know. And I said to him, okay, I've got to run. I've got a commitment. And I hung up the, you know, and got out of the car and there were two little girls on the porch, just grandpa. And you have to train your heart and mind to know that one of those is valuable, the other is priceless. And to not get sucked into the ego part of coaching someone who's running a global brand. Um, so that's a training. It's, this is about training our heart, right? Uh, and the good thing is it makes us more humble, more loving. You know, at the end of the day, that guy's not going to be visiting me and a nursing home, but those two little girls probably will. Yeah. All right. I have a you for about 15 more minutes. I promise you we'll be done on time, but I want to end it on um, specifically you're working with um, people, uh, high capacity business leaders, which probably means they also have, um, you know, wealth maybe beyond bought beyond the average, but I want to spend the last on family and kids. You've gotten to see a lot of really successful people have very successful families, and you've probably gotten to see really successful people unknowingly not have great families. What are the things that create great families? I mean, you've mentioned a Linda day, which is a day with your wife, um, but, but what are the, the characteristics of folks that are able to maintain both a high capacity business life or, or life? but also when at home and then what are characteristics of why that goes awry? Yeah. Well, you know, you build a great family. It doesn't happen naturally. You, you, you don't stumble into a great family. So building a great family requires two things, leadership and intentionality. So it, it takes a little bit of rigor, but a little bit of leadership and intentionality goes a very long way in a family. So it doesn't matter if your kids are three or 33, you can start to infuse that into your family. And so, but it's not CEO leadership, it's servant leadership. Chief, chief serving officer in our home. You know, two of our kids dropped by today because the highway was backed up and, and they didn't want to sit in traffic. So they just came here and, and worked in the backyard. They're both... You know, one works for a national law firm and the other one is running a, a nonprofit for seniors here in town. Um, they came, they stopped in, they opened my study door and 
smiled and said, hi, dad, and told me what they're doing. And, and they went and worked on the patio. And, you know, it was just natural for me to get up and go offer them a cappuccino. I brought some snacks out to them. Eventually, I, I brought them some lunch. And, and I didn't even think about it. That has been cultivated over 40 years of marriage. Linda and my uh, 40th wedding anniversary is May 15th, so in just mm. a few days. So the first thing is to know that if you want a great family, it will take leadership and intentionality. So you need to have a plan. I remember hearing Warren Buffett say that he knows a lot of people who were great investors and had a terrible family and were miserable, but he doesn't know anybody who was a mediocre investor and has a great family that's, that's disappointed. Mm. And coming from Warren Buffett, that, that has some real chutzpah. So the first thing is, again, just like running your business, you got to have a vision for your family. What's your vision for your family? Write it down and talk about it with your spouse. And, and if the kids are even 11 or 12 years old or 10 years old, start to include them in that vision. If your kids are in their 20s or 30s, you're going to have to have a little more savvy on how you build a common vision for your family. One way that I help families do it is um, I will get the whole family together if that's 30 people or 10 or whatever. And I'll say to them, suppose this was just your family and you could design it any way you want it. What would be the three characteristics you would want in your family to make it the best family just for you? Forget about everybody else. It's just your family. And I give them three post-it notes and they write those three characteristics and they come and put them up on the wall or in the window or wherever we're working. And, and then we group them. And lo and behold, the family starts to see five or six core values that they want to shape their family. And it's coming out of the whole family. And then I'll say to them, okay, come up with your, your phone, take a picture of the post-it notes. And now I want you to go away by yourself and take 15 minutes and turn those words into a vision statement for what the, you would like your family to be like 20 or 30 years from now. So you have to start with a family, uh, a family vision. Our family vision is a loving family, growing together spiritually, emotionally, having fun together, using our gifts to serve others. So as a result, if you looked at our calendar, if you looked at our interaction, you, you should see overwhelming evidence of all those characteristics. In fact, you do. We just spent uh, eight days together, the entire family. We flew two from Berlin here at Kiowa Island, and there was no conflict. It was a lot of diverse thinking and, and fun interaction, and we actually had a bike accident that, that was sad, but um, mm. brought the whole family together. The two little girls were so compassionate to Johan when he fell um, when the bikes collided and he fell off his bike and, um, you know, it, our family is just close knit and we'll be together two weeks at the end of the year at, um, in Berlin and, and skiing in the South of Germany and, and Switzerland. And it's the product of having a vision for many years. And then underneath that are the core values that you want to, to guide your family. Now, pace of the leader, pace of the pack. And that is my job is to cherish Linda. You know, women generally want to be cherished and men want to be respected. That's a generalization, but it's most commonly true from my experience. And so Linda really wants to know, do you cherish me? And so often we're tempted to, ch to 
to, to provide a lifestyle when in fact what they want is intimacy. And so I had to learn what it meant to be intimate with Linda and to learn how to cherish her. And so in 1998, I set my top five-year goal, Chris, to learn how to communicate more intimately with Linda. And I think I told you this, that um, it took me 90 days to share that with her. That's how courageous I am. And then basically all I did was I, I, I stuck it on the uh, coffee table and slid it across to her and said, hey, here's my goals for the next five years. And I got up and go, got a glass of wine. And I came back and she was crying and because she knew I was serious. And then, um, <laughs> you know, six months into that, she said, Lloyd, watching you try to learn how to be intimate is like watching a really bad golfer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was like, now you hurt my one feeling. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, but here we are these many years later, I know how to do that. So it's my job to learn how to lead in, in intimacy in the family. And then, you know, every year I list everyone in my family on a single sheet of paper. And I ask myself a few questions. Number one, what's their single biggest risk? Number two, what's their single biggest opportunity? And number three, what am I going to do to help them? Mm. Now, I don't always get that right. Imagine if I'm only 70% accurate. How helpful that would still be. And then that goes into my plan. So I know, as best I know, what each person in my family's biggest risk is, biggest opportunity, and the most meaningful thing I could do to help them. It goes in my plan. Then it goes on my calendar. So that's why Linda days are on my calendar. That's why monthly dates with Carolyn are in my calendar every month. So you impose the priceless things in your life into your calendar so they don't get displaced by other stuff that's just, you know, more, more um, urgent. Is that, is that helpful? That's super helpful. And maybe we'll, we'll bring it home on, especially with the kids you know, especially from a young age, are you, are you sharing this with them? Like, you know, I think when I think of folks my age or, or even folks that are much further along, everybody wants to have that dream family. And a lot of it is raising great kids, which can be tough. Um, is part of it sharing that vision? And, and like, again, what are the characteristics, especially families that have a lot of resources, they kind of have the money to take the easy road, if you know what I mean. So you've seen a lot of successful examples. Like, can you go a little deeper on maybe the kids, um, things that you did with the kids, or you've seen people do with kids growing up that give a better odds of a successful outcome for, for not only them, but for the family? Yeah. So the temptation in our cultures, and it's not just America, but it's true in you know Asia, wealthy parts of Asia, and certainly Europe, um, is to become a child-centered family instead of a marriage-centered family and to buy into the lie that to be a great family means you've got to be in everything and at everything. And so you run yourself ragged and you, you're actually two ships passing in the night. And what you're doing is creating kids that have all these sort of experiences not the deep-rooted connectedness, not just the time to be in the backyard and play with bugs and dig in the garden and 
and use their true creativity. Instead, the kids sitting in programs and run from one thing to the next by one parent or by Uber. Meanwhile, the other parent is in a hotel across the state at some kind of a, you know, soccer club that's got to be the elite soccer club so you can get into Stanford. And you've shrink-wrapped the whole thing and the intimacy has gone from it. And and you've become a child-centered family. And the most secure place to be growing up is in a marriage-centered family where a child knows mom and dad love each other and nothing is going to change. They are committed to each other for life and nothing is going to change. That gives a child true ballast in life. And it takes time to build a marriage-centered family. And I remember taking our kids out when they were... Um, you know, preteen and maybe one was just a teen and taking them to Starbucks. And uh, I, Chris, I found, I pulled a book off my shelf here not long ago and this little card fell out and uh, I took it to Linda and asked her, what was this? And, and she said, on the front, it's written mom's dreams. And on the back, it's written what we will do to help her. And she said, well, you took the kids to Starbucks and you said to them, you know, this is not a country club and your mom is not your slave. Mm. So she has her own life. And they're like, she does? Like she's got a life? I thought she was just a taxi, right? <laughs> and um, <laughs> she she has her own life and dreams. And I want you kids to get your tiny hineys busy and help out. Like show up, pay attention to her dreams. And so what what I find in that card is it's in their handwriting. Here's mom's dreams. And all three kids wrote down what they thought mom's dreams were. And on the back, they wrote down what they were going to do to help her. Now, what I'm doing there is I'm number one teaching them that you come a dis. I love you dearly, but you come a distant second to Lynn. And secondly, that this is a family where everybody is working to make it great. You, this is not where you, you on the lucky gene pool and you're born into a rich family where everybody is everything for you. Mm. And you got dad's credit card until the day you, you graduate from college and you graduate with no sense of the value of money, no way to manage money. Instead, mm. we had our kids pay part of their college education. And I started in the eighth grade teaching them how to do that. And they all graduated debt-free. And every single one of them, Chris, came to me at the end of their college experience and thanked me. And I told them the money never left the farm. I've invested. It's been our business growing at 11% return. And now we get to use it for something cool together. But now yeah. you know the value of money. Now that's leadership and intentionality. And not everybody has to do it like that. But that's one tactic to get to that outcome. So, you know, the last thing I would say is to make a list. Um, and I'll be glad to give you mine. And you can email it or post it, Chris, um, on your site. Of all the things you want to instill in the kids before they leave home. You know, no one is going to teach them the DNA of an intimate relationship. There's no class they're going to take on how to have a crucial conversation when the stakes are high. It's my job as the parent to teach them. So I went and made an entire list of everything I wanted to instill in those little rugrats before they left home. Now, the, the thing is, I didn't get them all done, but I got 80% of them done, Chris, mm. which is a lot better than I would have if I hadn't been intentional and been leading please send that over um this has been phenomenal more than i could have expected um which is no surprise 
thank you very much for today. You're so welcome, Chris. Thanks for what you're doing. This is really a powerful vehicle. Thanks for building it out. Everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.